Tonight, as we gather together around the pulpit, I want to again remind you that on Sunday evenings for many, many days now, we have been occupying ourselves with the matter of defending our faith. And we have come to the place, I believe part 22 in our series, of discussing the things that are of major significance to Christians, not only with regard to how we would offensively take the gospel to the far reaches of the world, but also as we are on the defensive when those who come to us and challenge us with regard to what we believe. And we come tonight to part two of a look at Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy. And when attempting to understand what Orthodox Christians believe, one is faced with a myriad of things that are both very familiar to evangelicals when you study what orthodoxy is all about, but there are also a number of things that are very, very foreign to us. And because of a limitation of time, we're not going to delve into such orthodox beliefs tonight as venerating or worshiping icons, using incense and candles, and the use of head coverings for women, etc. I know if we had the time, we would all be interested in finding out exactly what they do in their worship services on a very practical level. But as we did last time, talking about the origin of Eastern Orthodoxy, we certainly only skimmed the surface, and we would only be able to skim the surface of their practice in their religion if we were to go into all of these things. But I think... Suffice it to say, we want to deal tonight with those two other outline points that I mentioned to you last time, and that is the teachings of Eastern Orthodoxy, having discussed the origins last time, the teachings of Eastern Orthodoxy, and then a biblical evaluation of it. And I think for us, the main issues that we could occupy ourselves with most profitably tonight are two major theologies, two major theological presuppositions within Eastern Orthodoxy, and that is, first of all, the doctrine of salvation, and then secondly, the doctrine of Scripture. Those seem to be two of the most heavily debated points between evangelical Protestants and Eastern Orthodox church members. I wish we had the time to discuss a number of the other elements that I have studied and read about and interacted with a number of people on. In fact, just this past Friday morning, I had a breakfast with uh, my, my friend, Father Timothy Cremines of the Holy Trinity Orthodox Church here in the city of Little Rock. And we had a, had a very animated discussion talking about a number of different things. It's interesting that at least to say a little bit about the subject of icons, which is so fascinating for so many of us, that in one of the earliest times, I believe it was in the 800s, so it would have been, of course, the 9th century, that uh, in March 11th, I believe, of one of the years within that century, there was an official affirmation of icons that they should indeed be worshipped among Eastern Orthodox Christians, and in fact... If you did not do so, uh, you were branded with an anathema. You did not worship icons, those statues. And in fact, that's probably where we came up with the term an iconoclast. An iconoclast is a word that speaks of an image smasher. Someone who would actually do harm to icons, and someone who would be an iconoclast would be someone, of course, that Eastern Orthodoxy would be very much against. And so in an official document of their church, they proclaimed anathemas against anyone, even up to this day, who does not worship icons. Very, very fascinating fact within Eastern Orthodoxy. A couple of other things that are very, very interesting as we move into the teaching of Orthodox Christianity. Daniel Clendenin writing in a very helpful article in Christianity Today in 1997, wrote these words, Most Protestants would experience an Orthodox liturgy as something strange, even exotic. 
I will always remember my first visit to an Orthodox church in Russia. He taught there, by the way, for five years at Moscow State University as a visiting professor. He says, even before entering the church, one is taken aback by the unusual architecture, the glittering gold onion domes that sparkle like diamonds on a sunny day. Once inside, a Western Christian experiences sensory overload, the near absence of chairs or pews, dim lighting, head coverings for most women, icons and frescoes covering almost every inch of space on the walls and ceiling, a massive and ornate iconostasis separating the priest and the worshippers, the smoky smell of incense and hundreds of candles burning in memory of the dead, the priest resplendent in his ornate vestments and enormous beard, and worshippers repeatedly prostrating themselves, kissing the icons and making the sign of the cross. Now that would be a very different worship service for us, wouldn't it? He says further, Rote liturgy can stultify as well as edify, which is one reason why many people prefer more informal or personal worship settings. What are we to make, for example, of the Orthodox liturgy in Russia today, which is recited in 9th century Slavonic, a language very few Russians even understand? Todd Murray mentioned that uh, last week and uh, this morning as well, that in many of the Eastern Orthodox churches, they go through a rote liturgy program in which often they do not even know what the priest is reciting because it's in a different language and sometimes even a language that's separated by many thousands of years. What are we going to concern ourselves with then when we talk about Eastern Orthodoxy and its teachings? Well, one thing is for sure. When we talk about the salvation doctrine and the Scripture doctrine, there is very much a battleground, very much so. And it's interesting that in many ways, Protestant Christianity has not really understood their own doctrines well enough to debate Orthodox Christians. And that is why many, many people think that Protestants of the evangelical camp are moving in droves, many of them, into Eastern Orthodoxy because they know what they believe and they've been affirming it for many, many years. There are, in this article by Daniel Clendenin, a number of interesting things that are spoken about as to why there is such a push for Protestants to go toward Orthodoxy. He says, it merits our attention for several reasons. Not a few evangelicals in the last decade have forsaken Protestantism to join an Eastern Orthodox Church. <clears throat> Excuse me. The conversion of 2,000 evangelicals in 17 congregations, quote, from Alaska to Atlanta in 1997, recounted in Peter Gilquist's Becoming Orthodox, is only a small window into a larger phenomenon. As former Campus Crusade staff member Gilquist put it, why have so many Bible-believing, blood-bought, gospel-preaching, Christ-centered people come to the place of moving into orthodoxy? In other words, why would it be that there are so many people who are moving into this religion? Why is it that so many Protestants are coming to the place where they are not only not understanding all of the things that they would need to understand about their own religion, but why would they be moving into a worship service and liturgy, liturgy as I described before? Clendenin says, Orthodoxy's size alone warrants our attention, despite its invisibility on the cultural radar screens of most Americans. Although it is difficult to gather firm figures, Worldwide Orthodox Christians number about 150 million, with 3 million in the United States alone, more than most evangelical denominations. He says, at a minimum, Protestants need to move beyond ignorance of these neighbors. Well, what is our opportunity to move beyond ignorance? What do they teach? What do they believe? Let's talk first about, first of all, about the, the Orthodox doctrine of salvation. Now, I talked a little bit about this with Bob Lapine, who has 
dialogue with some of his friends who are Orthodox. And it is very, very difficult, as I have seen some of that correspondence go back and forth, to pin down what Orthodox people really believe regarding the doctrine of salvation. Very, very difficult. I went to Timothy Cremines, this, uh, this parish priest of the Holy Orthodox Trinity Church, and I asked him for a very, very basic book that would describe for me the essence of the doctrine of salvation as taught by Orthodox Christians. And he gave me a book that he said is the basic book for which all would understand a true Orthodox teaching. And I looked at it, and here's what it says regarding the, the matter of salvation. Quote, In Orthodox theology, salvation is not static, but dynamic. It is not a completed state, a state of having arrived, a state of having made it, but a constant moving toward theosis, toward becoming like Christ, toward receiving the fullness of God's life. And it never can be fully achieved in this life. Now, what do you make of that statement? It can never be fully achieved in this life. They say it's not a static thing. In other words, Protestant theology would say that there very much is a time for which at least the initial completed action of our salvation has taken place. Commonly, we call it our justification. A time when God forensically declares, legally declares, that a person is no longer an enemy of His, but a friend. But Orthodox theology, that is, Orthodox Christianity, they don't see it that way. They see salvation in a very different way. This particular writer goes on to say, We were saved at Golgotha, having died and risen with Christ in baptism. And they, that is Christians, are being saved daily through repentance and the yielding of their mind, heart, and will to God. And they, Christians again, look forward to their glorification with Jesus at the second coming. Now, if you read that statement and compare it with the earlier statement that I read, it is a bit confusing because that sounds like Protestant teaching. There is, of course, a sense in which our salvation is past, having occurred in our lives, a sense in which it is also present, that we are being saved, that is, our sanctification is underway. And there's also a sense in which he says our salvation is future, that is, our glorification. So in many ways, it's hard to pin down exactly what Orthodox people really believe regarding salvation, at least as it retains Protestant language of the Reformation. They don't use that kind of language at all. This particular writer again says of salvation, what, is it, what does it mean to be saved? Now he's talking again to lay people. What does it mean to be saved? What is salvation in Christ? Salvation is freedom. Freedom from the tyranny of self-centeredness. Freedom from the bondage of fear and death. Salvation in Christ is being freed from myself so that I can become the person God created me to be and intends me to become. Salvation, according to Orthodox theology, is not the state of, I have arrived, I have made it, I am saved. Rather, it is the state of, I am on the way. I am moving. I am growing in God, for God, with God, and through the power of God. End quote. In other words, when you talk to them about salvation, they talk about everything in the immediate, everything in the present. They talk about moving toward the Lord, moving toward Jesus Christ. They talk about uh, theosis, the idea of moving toward Christ, becoming more like Christ. And of course, for us, we might say, well, that certainly is an aspect of our salvation. That is an aspect of what we, we would say is our sanctification. But is there any declarative act? Is there anything that God did for us at a point in time? Or is everything dynamic and not static? Is there nothing that has been completed, at least as a declaration is concerned? Apparently not in Orthodox theology. They believe, by the way, that salvation begins with your infant baptism. And in that sense, is very much akin to Roman Catholicism. Orthodox theologian Thomas Hopko writes this, Everything in the church 
flows out of the waters of baptism, the remission of sins and life eternal. Now remember, they're talking about infant baptism. They believe that at an infant's baptismal ceremony, which by the way, they do, unlike the Roman Catholic Church, believe in a full immersion three times so that there is a complete remission of sins and life eternal being given at that point. Infants are immersed three times into water, which is called the bath of regeneration. And, quote, by which a person is born again, wholly cleansed from both original and actual sins, and consequently saved from guilt and punishment. They call that ceremony, by the way, the chrismation. The idea of the charisma gift. It's a gift of God's grace. It's uh, performed immediately after rising from the baptismal waters. The priest anoints the infant with a special ointment, making the sign of the cross on various parts of the body, thus acknowledging the gift and seal of the Holy Spirit. And so in a very, very different way than Protestant people, they would say that infant baptism is absolutely essential. And it begins for them the theosis, the moving toward God, the becoming like God, including the bath of regeneration, the remission of sins, and the seal and gift of the Holy Spirit and the chrismation. Now one of the ways that Orthodox Christianity moves around the problem of the inherited guilt we've received from Adam is to deny it. They deny inherited guilt from Adam. They only believe that we as individuals are to pay a price or to deal with the guilt for our own sins, not for the sins of Adam. We're responsible for our own faults, our own transgressions, and not from Adam. In addition to some of these statements on salvation as I've given them to you, Orthodox Christianity believes that they're the only ones who truly possess salvation in Christ. They believe they're the one true church. And they believe that both Roman Catholics, who they believe separated from them as the true church, and later the Reformation separated from the Roman Catholic Church, so that each of those groups are actually separated people for which they are falling into a state of apostasy, if not already apostates, and they are outside the true relationship that they have with Jesus Christ. That's what they believe. That's their doctrine. They claim to be the one true church of Christ on earth, which alone, they alone, have guarded the apostolic tradition of the faith which is in Christ. They would charge, quote, that both Catholics and Protestants have lapsed from the faith into error if not outright heresy, unquote. Further, the Orthodox Church is very similar to Roman Catholicism in the matter of the Eucharist. Now, they don't go into a big detail about the mystery of how Jesus Christ is made into water, excuse me, made into wine and bread, but they do agree that even though it's a mystery, it does take place. They're not transubstantiationists like Roman Catholics, but they do believe that there is a mystery involved and that Christ, even though having had a once-for-all sacrifice, does meet with people in the Eucharist in a real, literal presence. Now, is that an interesting doctrinal statement for the Eastern Orthodox Church? Is it not very, very different than what we believe? To be a part of a church then, an Eastern Orthodox Church, you would have to believe that you must be baptized as an infant. You must also undergo the chrismation, this anointing by the priest, that this gives you both the bath of regeneration and the gift and seal of the Holy Spirit, that you're in the kingdom of God, and that as you grow up, you are simply moving in a theosis, a movement toward God, a becoming more like Jesus Christ. Works are very, very important. And indeed, if you are to be a faithful member of the Eastern Orthodox Church, you must deny that anybody outside the church is really a true Christian. Now, in my discussions with 
Father Timothy Cremines, I've asked him on several occasions, do you believe I'm a Christian? Do you believe I have an intimate, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you believe I'm on my way to heaven? And he will normally respond by saying, I don't know. I don't know. He said, I want to believe that. But I have certain things that tie me to the one true apostolic Catholic or universal church. And you're not in that church. And that troubles me. Now, interestingly enough, this particular man has had a very, very interesting and unique journey into the Eastern Orthodox faith. Ten years ago, as I was talking with him on Friday, and he was recounting some of his uh, spiritual heritage, ten years ago, he was the pastor of an Assemblies of God church. And he came to the place where he was very ill at ease with not only their doctrine, but also their practice. And across the street was an Eastern Orthodox church, and he began to be uh, very influenced by that, began to read a great deal, and ultimately became an Eastern Orthodox priest, having gone to St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York, studying under some of the greatest Eastern Orthodox theologians in the United States, receiving his MDiv, and then being commissioned to come uh, to Little Rock to start uh, a church, to start a parish, and he has been doing that for a number of years now. It's a fascinating discussion with him, but in many ways, of course, it's troubling because it does not appear as though we'll ever really come to the place of an agreement on the doctrine of salvation. What else does the Eastern Orthodox Church believe? Let's talk about the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture. What is the ground of authority for Orthodox Christians? Well, they contend that Scripture is a definite source of authority, but it is not the only witness to the authority of God. I mentioned uh, earlier that they see icons as very, very authoritative. Indeed, they do. They see icons as what they call a theology in color. Scripture is a theology in word or a theology in writing, but icons are a theology in color. It's something you can actually touch and taste and feel and kiss. It's something for which God has wondrously provided for Christians, and it is a source of authority for them. They also see the writings of the apostolic fathers, those who came just after the apostles themselves, and they see that as a source of authority. They, they see that even to the point where they say it equally, these apostolic fathers speak to the authority of even the canon of Scripture and elucidate the Scripture itself and ultimately is on a par with Scripture, even though, again, sometimes it's very difficult to pin down exactly what they mean by that. Clendenin writes, for instance, one can find orthodox statements that ascribe a unique authority to Scripture over tradition, but these are few and far between, and they speak of tradition in a narrower than usual sense. Put more starkly, orthodoxy explicitly rejects the historic Protestant idea of sola scriptura. John Meyendorf, who Father Timothy Cremines gave me a book that is by this man, John Meyendorf, and a Lutheran theologian, and they're dialoguing about the matter of salvation. This particular Lutheran fellow is not the most conservative as they talk about that doctrine, but nevertheless, they are having dialogue with each other. John Meyendorf writes this, The Christian faith can in no way be compatible with the notion of sola scriptura. Rather, Orthodoxy affirms a single source of revelation, but they include in that single source holy tradition, including the apostolic fathers. Now, they would say that Scripture is the preeminent among several forms of authority, including holy tradition, including the icons. They also see the seven ecumenical councils that I mentioned last time as equally authoritative. They see them as normative and even infallible patristic writings, especially those of the first four centuries, later councils as well. The liturgy that they use in the church is an equal source of authority, even though they might say Scripture is the preeminent source. Even canon law, that means how they operate the church, 
and ultimately icons, as I mentioned a moment ago. One of their theologians, Camaris, writes this, Scripture and tradition are equally valid, possesses equal dogmatic authority, and are equal in value as sources of dogmatic truth. And then this statement, this conception, this conception of Scripture and tradition, lessens the validity and value of the Holy Scriptures as the primary source of Christian dogma. That's what they believe. That's their tenet. That's how they come to a place of understanding how they should respond to God. Don't miss that quote. This conception of both Scripture and tradition lessens the validity and value of the Holy Scriptures as the primary source of Christian dogma. Now, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of Scripture as taught in Eastern Orthodoxy? Well, I want you to put your hand in your Bible and I want you to grab Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let's talk a little bit about whether or not some of these statements that I read to you are true. I think there are too many passages which speak against the Eastern Orthodox view of salvation. And I think one of the places that we need to start is Romans 5.12. Is it true that we are not the inheritors of Adam's sin and guilt? As Eastern Orthodoxy says, no. According to Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to whom? All men, because all sin. It's a very, very logically precise statement by Paul. Through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world. And as a result of sin entering the world, death happened through that sin. And as a result of that, death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. I think that is a verse that would be very, very hard to grapple with if I was an Eastern Orthodox person. Because it seems to me to speak clearly to the matter of Adam passing along a sin nature, a sin problem, a sin debt, for which then the penalty was death through that sin and that death spreading to all men. Now we might say, well, is that speaking of physical death? Is that speaking of spiritual death? Yes, I believe it's speaking about both. Primarily spiritual death, but obviously physical death comes upon those who are sinners. And since everyone is a sinner, there will be two things happening. One, spiritual death and then ultimately physical death. Look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin again, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. What Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 5 is setting up two spheres a two ways of thinking, two models. One is Adam, the first man. Christ is the last Adam. And through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death because of that sin. And through the one man, righteousness entered the world and therefore what resulted in that righteousness was a justification of life to all men. For verse 19, as through the one man's disobedience, Adam the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, Christ, the many will be made righteous. I think that's a very, very difficult passage to grapple with if you do not affirm the original sin of Adam and its effect on all men. There's another passage in this regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think this, again, is a difficulty for an Eastern Orthodox view of the doctrine of salvation. That's not to say they don't have an answer. They obviously have answers to these passages, but I just don't see them as compelling as I have read them. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15, For since by a man came death, 
And I don't think that that's only referring to Adam's death. And that would be one of the explanations. Adam sinned, Adam died. It resulted in his own death, not ours. But the rest of the verse, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. It's very hard to, to not see that as some universal application. For as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Now Paul sort of takes this and he narrows its application to the Ephesian believers. And he says, and you, Ephesians 2.1, and you, Ephesian people, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Certainly, all the way from Adam to the Ephesian believers themselves, there must be an affirmation that this deadness was caused by trespasses and sins, not only by their own choice to sin, which Eastern Orthodoxy would believe and affirm, but also because of a spiritual deadness in Adam. He says in verse 2, "...in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived." That again seems to be more of a universal application. They formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Again, I think a very important statement. By nature, children of wrath. And by that universal application of Adam all dying, by universal application, by nature, all are children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. One man, Adam, bringing death and judgment. One man, Christ, bringing mercy and forgiveness. He raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then this statement, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Past tense. Past tense. There's something that happened to us that clearly can be said to be past tense. And that, that gift of God's grace through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Again, I think it's very, very difficult to affirm, and as I've dialogued with them, trying to, to really hit the root issues of how is it then that salvation always seems to be to you in the present. Is there no past reality? Well, only as I was moving toward Christ. Only as I was becoming more like Christ. And that is a newer reality today than it was yesterday, admittedly. But it's all a dynamic thing, not a static. I think that's troubling because of some of these verses. Now, with regard to the doctrine of salvation and its implications about this completed action, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24. And again, these might be some of, past, some of the passages that you begin to grapple with with regard to some of these folks. You have a chat room, email discussion, telephone, lunch times, breakfast, talking with them, trying to see exactly what they believe, seeing what is common to our own faith, seeing what is alien to it. Romans 3.24. Let's talk about justification with Eastern Orthodoxy. Here's what Paul says. All have sinned, verse 23, and have fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, immediately, once you begin to talk with them about justification, one problem will develop. If you were to say to them, I believe that this particular word found in our Bibles and defined rightly is a forensic declaration. And they say, ah, that's Reformation terms. We existed long before the Reformation. Our church was long before that. We don't even use such terminology because it is foreign to the New Testament. And then if you were to say, well, what does justification mean there? They would say, 
It is that process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. It's the theosis. And I say, well, what about a completed action there? Is justification in any sense a point in time? Is it punctiliar? Does it happen at a point in time? And it seems to me that one of the fundamental disagreements with Eastern Orthodoxy is that they don't believe it's punctiliar, they believe it's linear. We believe that it is a point in time with continuing results. Justification is a declarative act, and immediately upon the heels of that justification, God begins to do a linear work in us by His Spirit, through His grace, which enables us then to become more like Jesus Christ. See, that's the difference. I was heartened to see in some of this dialogue that I read with Bob Lapine and uh, someone else who is of the Eastern Orthodox persuasion. Every time you try to ask the question about justification, about a forensic declaration, they always come back to the idea of more of a linear idea, not that which was completed in Jesus Christ, not that which was done at the cross, and not that which was a justifying reality by God whereby He says, You are no longer my enemy but my friend. It appears as though that is not a doctrine that is affirmed by Eastern Orthodoxy, and I think that's one of the cardinal doctrines of our faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is a very familiar passage to you. He made Him, God making Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I believe what's happening here is that we are seeing Christ as our substitute. There was a time when Jesus Christ died on a cross. We might be able to say that it was on a springtime, Friday afternoon, late evening, somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D., in which Jesus Christ Himself died at a point in time. And when that death occurred, we were saved. Everybody who is ever a valid, genuine, God-created, God-elected person in the body of Jesus Christ was saved right at that point, according to Scripture. The application of that salvation came to us when we believed, when God granted us faith and repentance. But the actual transaction, what God did was give us salvation at the cross. It wasn't just when I woke up one day and said, I believe in Jesus Christ. That was the application of my salvation by the Holy Spirit's power. It actually occurred the very moment that Jesus Christ gave up His life in sacrificial death. When God the Holy Spirit then quickened my eyes, opened my eyes, and gave me faith, gave me repentance, it was at that point that the Holy Spirit applied the work of Christ's redemption to me. And this particular sacrifice, that moment in time, what Christ was doing in actually substituting His life for mine, His righteousness for my sin, happens just as Paul says it right here in verse 21. He made Him who knew no sin right there at the cross to be sin on my behalf and your behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is something, again, that appears not to be so very clear in Eastern Orthodoxy and, in fact, I believe, probably rejected. Galatians 2.16 Galatians 2.16. And I dare say this might be the clearest passage. One in which there could be very, very interesting dialogue. Paul, of course, is grappling with the Judaizers. They're talking about a justification that occurs not just by Christ, but also through the works of the law. And Paul's answer is this. Verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Why was he saying that? Well, there were Judaizers and they were saying, I'm a Jew by nature. I'm in the kingdom. I'm there. 
I'm of the Abrahamic heritage. I have my circumcision. I have the oracles of God. I have the law of God. I have it all. And he says, yes, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We are sinners, but not sinners from among the Gentiles. But let me tell you this. Nevertheless, even though we're Jews by nature, knowing this, a man is not justified by the works of the law. There's no amount of circumcision. There's no amount of doing the works of the law. There's no amount of law keeping. There's no amount of law abiding. You couldn't even do that anyway. But it is through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. You say, why do you make a point out of that? What is infant baptism? It's a work. Infant baptism is a work. What is chrismation? It's a work. What is all of that that leads away from that? It's a work. And I cannot have that as a formula in my salvation. That must be the fruit of my salvation, if it's anything at all. My salvation is my justification not by what I have done in deeds of righteousness, by what Jesus Christ has done when He justified the wrath of God by being that sin substitute. That's what justification is. It was God declaring me just even though I wasn't just. And it was God declaring Christ the sin bearer even though He'd never sinned. You see the transaction? You see the difference? Eastern Orthodoxy rejects that doctrine. So I think it is good for us to reject the Eastern Orthodoxy doctrine of salvation. Now, secondly, and as we close, I want to talk about the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture. This may be the most important disagreement, even though obviously the issue of salvation is the eternal issue of disagreement, this may be the biggest disagreement because we're talking about these passages of Scripture, we're talking about the doctrine of Scripture, and that is where we receive our authority to say anything about the doctrine of salvation, right? So even though the orthodox view of Scripture and tradition might be closer to ours, because we don't reject tradition, at least in total, isn't that true? We don't always say that complete and utter disregard for tradition is the best thing for the Christian? No, we don't say that at all. In fact, there are a number of passages that speak of the idea of tradition. We dare not say what some have said today, and I think rightly so, Protestant evangelicals have fallen into a trap of not affirming sola scriptura, but solo scriptura. That's right. We often define the doctrine of sola scriptura wrongly. And we, like the Anabaptists, like the radical reformers, we reject all tradition, everything, and in fact, we do it to our own detriment. Why? If we were to reject all of it, then where and how would we be helped by the creeds and councils of the church? Those are very helpful to us. Are they the ultimate and infallible source of authority? No. Are they helpful? Yes. And to disregard all of it and to go along our merry way and to assume that we can say, it's only my Bible, it's only my Bible, that's all that it is, and disregard all the teaching of the church and disregard all preaching and disregard all godly men who have been used by the Holy Spirit to have the illumination of the Spirit regarding the Word of God is to be naive and foolish. How could we even preach? if we affirmed solo Scripture? Why would we preach? Why would we try to elucidate Scripture? Why would we try to do such things? Why would we have church? Why would we have worship? And that's, again, tragically, what maybe many Protestants have done to fall into a trap. And they've fallen into that trap, and in so doing, Protestantism itself has become splintered because nobody can agree with what Scripture says. Everybody has his own rule of faith. Everybody has his own interpretation. And guess what happens? Protestantism becomes splintered. And then people say, well, look at Eastern Orthodoxy. It's had the same doctrine for all these years. It's had the same truth. It's had the rule of faith. 
It's had the, the tradition that has been the tradition from the very ones who were discipled by the apostles themselves up to our own present day. That's appealing. In fact, listen to a couple of things that I think are very, very well stated. In a very recent book, in fact, I just received it two days ago, by Keith Matheson called The Shape of Sola Scriptura. This is what he says. For several centuries, the debate over, over the authority of Scripture has too often been framed in terms of a false dilemma. Scripture versus creeds, Scripture versus the church, or more commonly, Scripture versus tradition. As we have discovered, this way of stating the issue is highly misleading. This was not the way the discussion was framed by either the early church fathers or by the reformers. The reformers did not reject tradition. They rejected one particular concept of tradition in favor of another concept of tradition. The Reformation debate was originally between adherents of two different concepts of tradition. The Reformers, they affirmed a certain level of tradition because it was in concert with elucidating the Scripture itself. There's no reason then to reject that kind of tradition. Even in the Scripture, Paul talks about tradition by word or by mouth. There's no reason to reject that. The Reformers never did such a thing. What they were rejecting was the Roman Catholic view that had two different sources of tradition. And if, in fact, a certain source of tradition, the magisterium of the church, the Pope speaking ex cathedra, if that was at a point in which it was not only elucidating Scripture, but actually on a par or over against the Scripture, then you were to believe that tradition. That's what the Reformers were objecting. That's what they were rejecting. That's what sola scriptura is. It's rejecting a form of tradition that says that at some points it's even competing or filling in the blanks of Scripture and it's just as authoritative and indeed that also is a source of infallible truth. That's what the Reformers rejected. One concept which had its origins in the first centuries of the church defines Scripture as the sole source of revelation and the only final, final and infallible standard. The other concept of tradition, which was not hinted at until the 4th century and which was not clearly expounded until the late Middle Ages, defines Scripture and tradition as two separate and complementary sources of revelation. And that's when the Reformers said, no, we cannot affirm such a thing. There is no such thing as a dual source of revelation, both being infallible. And that's why they put that little sola word in front of Scriptura, that Latin phrase. It is sola Scriptura. It is the sole source of divine revelation. If preaching, or if the doctrine of illumination, which would bring about the elucidation of Scripture... If that were to be done in the churches, which they certainly affirm, they would never say, what I'm speaking to you today is on a par with Scripture itself as though I was speaking about a complementary source of divine revelation. No Christian preacher says, what my sermon was, was a source of divine revelation to you. And if I ever told you that, dismiss me immediately. Because I am setting myself up as a source of divine revelation. That's why we say what we do as a church about the concept of revelation. Revelation comes to us from God through the completed canon of Scripture. The Reformation arose during a time when both strands of thought, that is this one source of revelation, that is the Scripture, and tradition which is consistent with that, and then this two-source theory that Roman Catholicism had, these two strands could be found within the church. The early reformers rejected the two-source view of scriptural authority and called the church back to the one-source view she had taught in the first three centuries. In rejecting the later concept of tradition, the reformers coined the term sola scriptura. See, now you know. Now you know exactly what the reformers were battling. They were not rejecting tradition out of hand, like the radical reformers, like the Anabaptists. They rejected the doctrine 
of sola scriptura, not by rejecting it like Roman Catholics, but by superseding it and giving it a definition that it never had before. And that was to reject all tradition, everything, absolutely everything was out except the scripture itself, even all of the creeds and confessions as even a source of help to the church. We have to reject it all. And see, that's not sola scriptura, that's solo scriptura. So what has evangelicalism done? Well, it's made this move to orthodoxy maybe a little bit smoother by misdefining these ideas. Matheson says this, The numerous ways in which sola scriptura has been misused have provided its critics with further evidence of the practical unworkability of the doctrine. If sola scriptura is true, these critics ask, then why are Protestants unable to come to agreement on what the Scripture teaches? For these reasons and more, it is absolutely imperative that the heirs of the Reformation be able to define accurately their concept of authority and be able to defend it against its opponents. That's why this is an important evening. That's why when you dialogue with them, you define sola scriptura in an accurate way. He says, this will require not only answering the relevant criticisms of Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox apologists, but also doing away with a large number of faulty concepts which are often wrongly identified with sola scriptura. Roman Catholic and Orthodox apologists have been effective in their criticisms in large part because of the fact that most Protestants have adopted a subjective and individualistic version of sola scriptura that bears little resemblance to the doctrine of the Reformers. And then he ends by saying, as long as Protestants attempt to maintain this defective version of sola scriptura, and as long as this version of the doctrine is allowed to be identified as the Protestant position, Roman Catholic and Orthodox apologists will continue to effectively demolish it and gain frustrated seekers. Look, if you had a view that rejected everything except the Bible, and then you were tasked with the responsibility to interpret the Bible accurately, how would you do? If you had no appeal whatsoever from any other person in the church beside yourself, either historically that went before you or presently with you, how would you do on the exam? How would you be able to form the doctrine of the kenosis? How would you be able to define the deity of Jesus Christ? How would you be able to summarize the great understanding of the Trinity? How would you even be able to affirm the doctrine of Scripture itself unless you had help, assistance? And what God does in His marvelous work is provide us with Christians of all the ages that help illumine our own minds by their illumination and therefore give us a very helpful body of information. You say, well, is that equal as a source of divine revelation? No. Only Scripture is. But as I understand it, and then as I write it down as a doctrinal statement, and then as that doctrinal statement is affirmed as the Bible Church of Little Rock doctrinal statement as we have it, that is not a source of divine revelation. That is not inspired. But it sure is helpful. It is very helpful. It allows us to know what the Scripture teaches on a number of fronts because there have been a number of people who have helped elucidate that for us. And as we, in our day, as we formulate other thoughts and ideas and we do theology in the present day, we might be able to be the great forefathers of those who come after us. We being illumined, they being illumined and helped by us. That's tradition. That's history. That's doing theology. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Is it, a, is it a divine source of revelation? Not on your life. Is it on the par with Scripture? No. So is the apostolic fathers of the first and second century, is that a divine source of revelation? No. Are icons? No. Liturgy? No. Canon law? No. Roman Catholic magisterium? Ex-cathedra of the Pope? No. Should it even be classified as anything remotely connected? If it's not a teaching of the Scripture, it is to be then rejected. And in many ways, that's why the Anabaptists were so much against infant baptism as rightly they should have been. 
because it does not find its place at all in Scripture. There is no reference whatsoever to infant baptism in the Word of God. None. It's to be rightly rejected. Can we, however, come to a place of affirming a level of tradition? Yes. When the Scripture itself was not completed, when the canon had not been closed, Paul talked about what he was saying to people as Scripture. And that's okay, because the Scripture is to be affirmed in that way, because the canon had not yet closed. When Paul talked about tradition in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he talked about that which was yet to be Scripture, but which became Scripture. Once the canon of Scripture is closed, however, the inspired tradition closes with it. All tradition that comes after that cannot be classically defined as a source of divine revelation. Only Scripture can. You say, well, what's the practical benefit? All these godly men of the past. We can affirm these apostolic fathers. We can affirm that every once in a while, uh, because of their great study of the Scripture, they came up with tremendous theology, tremendous truth. Those creeds and councils and catechism, they're very helpful to us. They help us in defining what it means to understand the Scripture in a greater way. Is it on a par with Scripture? No, sir. Is it helpful to us? Yes. What do we do with Eastern Orthodoxy then? What do we say about them? Well, first of all, it's very good for us to talk with them. Because in an effort to try to talk with them, we find out what they believe and not a character of what they believe. How is it helpful? It's also helpful for us because maybe in our discussion with them, some of them, by the Spirit of God, might say, you know what? I think I've been deceived. I think I've been duped. I think I believe in a doctrine of salvation and a doctrine of Scripture that's defective. How can I move away from this movement now? That would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? I think as we close our time tonight, we would do well to pray to that end, that those to whom we come in contact we could defend our faith in an accurate way, using our terms and labels and interpretations of Scripture as accurately as we can, and then pray that they would receive that. Pray that they would respond to that. The last thing I said to Father Timothy Cremines was to say, now that I've taken you out to breakfast, tag, you're it. I don't want to lose contact with you. I want you to set up the next breakfast because I'm not through talking to you about what I believe. And he said, and I'm not through talking to you about what I believe. And I said, fair enough. We're going to continue to dialogue and talk together and see if the Spirit of God might take us to a place of commonality, real, true unity in the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us a mind for the understanding of your truth. Thank you for challenging us to understand the Scripture, to defend it, to come to a place of being underneath its great weight and crushing our pride and bringing us to a level of submission to it. Father, I pray that through my own study of Scripture and through the study of the Scripture on the part of these dear people, that You would take what we've learned tonight and throughout this series and bring that to bear upon a conversation, a chat, a, an email, a phone call, a lunch, a breakfast, a dinner. Whether it be a neighbor or a friend or maybe even a family member. And I pray, Lord, that You would take us as we continue to study and learn and challenge us to correct maybe some defective definitions that maybe have crept into our thinking. And I pray that You would use this ardent study, this zeal for righteousness, and that with the true doctrine of salvation, with the true doctrine of Scripture, at least as we can say we humbly understand it, that You would use it in the life of one of these folks, and that You would bring us and them to true unity in the faith. 
Oh Lord, what a great thing it would be, not just for the Orthodox, but for the Jehovah's Witness, for the Mormon, for the Roman Catholic, for the Buddhist, for the Hindu, for any of those that we know we should share the gospel with, the true gospel, and that they would respond. Father, we ask that you would bring it to pass for your glory and your honor in Christ's name. Amen.